Ladies and gentlemen, I don't mind admitting that as I grow older, and I am starting to grow a bit old, I have to say, that I've become more and more emotional about the First World War. Um, it doesn't take much to set me off. Um, and I kind of get emotional. Men and women gave in what they called the Great War for Civilization. And I've just completed a study trying to trace my grandfather's history within World War I, because like many other men, he just did not want to talk about it. Um, I was 13 when he died, and I was just saying to Imogen over supper, I didn't really know what to ask him, um, unless he didn't really know what to say. But I've since found out that he fought in the Second Battle of the Somme and survived, wounded, brought back home, patched up, sent out again, and finally at the Finn 19, uh, early part of 18, was taken prisoner of war and sent to a uh, prison war camp in Lower Saxony. And that's the reason the man survived, because he said that if he'd continued, he would assure he would not have survived. And I'm sure that story rings true for a lot of people. Three short years ago, we hosted Kate Aidy here. A uh, bit of a disastrous evening because the sound system packed up. Um, but she gave us a very, very articulate view of um, the role of women at the start of the First World War. Um, tonight, we're going to look further afield. We're going to concentrate on some part to do with Brooklyn's at that time. So will you please give a very, very warm welcome to Imogen Middleton. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Technology's failed us already. There you Thank go. Thank you. Okay. Lovely. Hello, everyone. Um, as I was introduced, uh, my name is Imogen. Um, I'm one of two project officers working on this project here, Surrey in the Great War, a county remembers. Um, we're based at Surrey History Centre in Woking, and we are a national lottery-funded project. So if any of you have ever bought a lottery ticket, some of your money has come towards heritage projects like here for the centenary period to commemorate Surrey's people and places um, during the First World War. So our focus is on the home front, but looking also if my thing works. Just point it. Technology. Hang on. I'll just go back and forward. There we go. There we go. So we're looking at Surrey's people, sort of at, on the home front, so we're looking at civilians. We're also looking at Surrey's men who fought in the East Surrey Regiment or the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment. But then we expand a little bit further and we've got men from outside the county fighting in the Surrey Regiments and also Surrey going out and about and uh, representing the county. So our pool of people is quite wide and we do take anyone on a tenuous link if they're uh, of any interest to us so for example uh, a chap that came to us a story he's originally from Devon so I'm already interested because I'm originally from Devon but um he uh, moved to Sutton in 1920, so just a little bit post-war, and we are interested in the post-war period. But he wrote the song Mademoiselle from Marmontiere, the famous bottle song with the naughty lyrics. Um, and we thought, well, that's just too good an opportunity to miss, so we included him in our project. But as you see, a couple of examples of kind of images that we, we've already sourced, whether they're already in our project archives, thank you, or so they've been donated to us from families. So we have here 
These are German prisoners of war being taken to a, a camp at Frimley. Um, we've got ladies working in the Broadwood piano factory that was converted to uh, munitions use and the, fam the Wood, uh, family seat was in Capel. This is the Whitley camp down on the A3 where the Canadians are staying. And then we have some Belgian refugee records, which I will talk a little bit more later. And seeing if it works. <laughs> there we go, not to worry. I'll keep going through. And it's disappeared off the screen. There we go. <laughs> We're success at last. So this is just a little example about who we are looking at. We are, we're also looking at foreign individuals in the county. And uh, Weybridge, um, I will talk about in a little minute, um, had some Belgian visitors stay throughout the war. But there were Belgian refugees, there were German prisoners of war, there were Canadians at Whitley, there were Canadians at Epsom, there were New Zealand and Australian soldiers at Walton being cared for at the local hospital at Mount Felix. And then we're looking at conscientious objectors. We're looking at those people who didn't agree with the war effort and what they did. And I've got a local example with me to share with you tonight. So our, our scope is pretty wide. We are looking at everything and anyone with family stories. We're looking at uh, community groups, sports groups during the Great War to build together that patchwork of civilian life during the war period. If I try again. There we go. <laughs> Um, so I just thought I'd sort of share with you a few bits about where we're getting our information from in the hopes that it may inspire you to go and sort of have a look at your own ancestors, potentially. So our first port of call is the archives. I work at the county archives, and we have millions of documents, all dating back to the 1100s. So, of course, we have First World War records in there. And most prominently, the R.C. Sheriff papers, because he was from Kingston. Our boundary is inclusive of the southern London boroughs that used to be part of Surrey, so Croydon, Sutton, Wimbledon and Richmond, and Kingston. Um, and we are finding some absolute treasure treasure. We're finding letters, um, diary extracts. There's an example of a chap called Teddy Cutts, and we have his sweetheart's diaries and letters to the war office. He went missing during the Battle of Luce, and we have every single letter for a year that she sent to the war office to try and find out what had happened to Teddy. And he sadly died at the battle, but we have the lock of his hair in our archives with the accompanying letters. So it's those really personal stories of Surrey people that we're interested in. Um, we're looking at sort of manuscripts, documents, sort of school logbooks. So, for example, the Lingfield school logbooks show the influenza outbreak in 1918 and the fact that dwindling school numbers as children are dying from influenza after the war and not returning for the next school week. So a couple of images I thought I'd bring along with me. On the left, we have the first register of patients from the Epsom Grandstand War Hospital. Um, the racecourse, um, like Kempton Park as well, was converted for military use. Epsom was turned into a war hospital. Kempton Park was a military depot. Um, so we have the list of the first patients to come in 1914, fresh from the Western Front. And then this picture on the right, many of you may recognise Clandon Park. Um, which sadly burnt down a couple of years ago. But this is what it used to look like when it was converted to be a Red Cross hospital in the First World War, when Lady Onslow took over as sort of uh, overall lord of everything at the, uh, the hospital and ruled it with an iron fist, as far as, as what we can find out from the papers so far. Nurses and then the convalescing soldiers in their blue uniforms, that would have been. 
We're looking at Surrey's newspapers. This would have been interest to many of you. We have 80, eight, just over 80 volunteers trawling through 12 Surrey newspapers covering eight years, 1914 to 22. And they are identifying any story that shows what the impact of the war was on Surrey's people and places. And we've just uploaded 36,000 indexes to our website. That's not even halfway through. Um, so this is the Surrey Herald, the Advertiser, the Comet, the Mirror, Dorking and Leatherhead Advertiser, the Farnham Herald and the Surrey Times and County Express. I think I've covered them all, if I can't remember. But um, it's anybody who's interested in finding out what was going on in their local place. So if you were to go to our website um, and type in Weybridge or Walton or any of the local towns around here, fingers crossed you'd be able to find a plethora of stories um, or clues as to where the original news article is. We sort of, our volunteers have helpfully provided a sort of a couple of lines explaining what the article says. Um, and then so the idea is that you'd go, we have the, um, the articles themselves, you can come and have a little look at them or just take clues as to what they say. And they are fascinating. I love looking through the newspapers and having a look. So I, uh, in the Surrey Herald, for example, you suddenly come across in 1915 pages where the middle sections of the columns are in front of what on earth is for, so, you know, four columns of French doing in the Surrey Herald, until I realised and put two and two together that we had lots of Belgian refugees in the county, 2,000 of them, um, and this was for them. This was written by Belgian refugees for refugees, detailing what was going on back home, and also detailing sort of potential meetups so you can kind of talk to each other, come and meet each other, and, and sort of, um, you know, t keep your kind of community collect, you know, community memories alive. We're also thinking, like, as, the, as advertisements, you've all heard of claim your PPI, um, the phone calls, you can get your Zeppelin insurance here for personal injury. Um, Surrey did suffer from, from Zeppelin air raids and World bombed in 1915. Fortunately, nobody died, just a swan. But um, in Croydon in 1917, uh, a road was bombed and houses were destroyed and there were fatalities. Um, and as I will explain a little bit later, that brought in some wartime restrictions. But you can see here in the Chertsey Women War Workers song. I don't quite know what the tune was, so hum at your own pace, I think, if you want to. But it's full of such advertisements. You can, you can buy your corset, but it can only be British-made, not German-made. Or your air raid fashion hats. They were very keen on selling things, anything to do with the war. So buy your, buy your soap and send it off to your Tommy on the Western Front. A real treasure trove of information. And then online research, so much on the internet these days. There is the British Red Cross um, voluntary aid detachment records that are completely free to view online if you think a relative of yours was a nurse. And I've got a couple of local examples to share with you in a moment. And then this here is the tribunal records for um, any chap who was trying to get out of being conscripted. So we have um, full records of the Middlesex um, tribunal, so Spelthorne used to be part of Middlesex, but it's now part of modern-day Surrey, and it'd be a bit rude of us not to include Spelthorne now. That means we can include part of the Middlesex Chronicle, and the Croydon one as well, and Croydon was a hotbed of conscientious objection because there was a very large Quaker community in the area, and some of the stories are fascinating. There was a local family to hear where parents had four boys. Three of them were already fighting out on the Western Front, and the, the, the youngest one was coming up to the age of 18, and he received his papers for his call-up in 1917. And at the tribunal, the father begged, please don't take my youngest boy. You already have three of them. Surely you can, I can keep my youngest. So they let him stay for another year. His, um, it came up again for tribunal a year later, 
And his, one of his middle brothers was, uh, was home on leave at this point, and a very cantankerous character, and managed to annoy the entire tribunal and got, himself, got his own leave cancelled and immediately shipped off back to the Western Front. But he also got his brother sent off with him. So all four boys are then out fighting on the Western Front, and they couldn't cope with the stress and the worry, and he committed suicide from this, uh, from, you know, sort of the worry that he was living through. And the real sadness is that all four boys returned home safe and sound at the end of the war. And it's these sorts of records that we're finding, these stories we're finding, of real personal tragedy and loss of Surrey's people. Um, but there are some amusing ones as well. You get uh, People could write in to argue against someone getting exemption, and you get many a wife writing in to argue that why is her being granted exemption? She quite hoped for a bit of peace and quiet for a year or so. So there are the amusing stories as well. And then it's gone to sleep again, so I will hurry over. And the other part of it is... Come on. What the slide should be showing in a moment is the family stories that we are collecting. Um, these are where we go out and we visit people, we interview, or we sort of get given stories via email and we follow it up. These are the personal stories that people have at home, personal collections of photographs, um, and diaries, finding out what their father did in the war. Um, and these are my absolute favourite part of this job that I do, and finding out the local stories. And hopefully the picture that will come up in a minute is one of our, my absolute favourites. It's of a Woking family. It's a wedding, wartime wedding from the 24th of May. It's not responding, but it's Dean. Of the Gibbons family from Woking. Here we go. And we have here Harold Gibbons and his bride Florence. A wartime wedding with Reginald here, his best man and brother, who later became the editor of the Woking New Mail. Um, he was based at the Inkerman Barracks, which is in the Knapp Hill area of, um, of Woking. There were South African soldiers being trained there during the First World War and played many a football match against the local teams. And we have the two other brothers, Frederick and Ernest. We do know Frederick was a bit of a naughty boy. His disciplinary record shows he failed to salute an officer on the King's Road at five o'clock and he was fined two days' pay. I know. And he obviously didn't learn his lesson because two days later he's then fined again for having an unkempt... And his brothers must have had a word because you don't see another mark on his uh, disciplinary record again. He obviously learned his lesson. But we have Harold's pictures from when he went off to go and serve in India. So two weeks after this photograph was taken, Harold was shipped off to Delhi and then to serve with Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment out in India. So many people, obviously, you know Belgium, you know France, the war zones there, the Eastern Front with Russia. But Surrey men were also in India. They were in Palestine, they were in Mesopotamia, far-flung areas of the world. And Harold was out there with them. So we've got this fantastic photograph of him in Delhi with all his comrades. And it's just beautiful. I love coming across these sorts of stories. But uh, Harold did his duty. Florence was pregnant as he left, so he didn't hang around, um, which uh, good on good old Harold. Um, so I move on to Weybridge. I thought I'd have a little look about Weybridge, and then I've got some Brooklyn stories with me too. So this is Baker Street in 1913. I don't know if any of you recognise it at all. Yes. Um, so Weybridge on the eve of war was a nice sort of busy, bustling town. Um, but as war approaches and comes into sort of 1916, 17, we have rationing 
food shortages. Um, so we have here an example of sugar distribution advertisements, letting people know that after the December the 30th, 1917, sugar will be distributed to the public in accordance with the rules of the food. Get your sugar ration cards and take them to the shop. And you had to apply for them, and, and business owners, grocers had to apply for a license to sell sugar. And um, it was very strictly controlled. So there was the Weybridge Food Control Committee that was in charge of distributing such cards to low businesses around here. And also meat was rationed and uh, milk was rationed, with all the produce, being, most of it being sent to the Western Front to feed the soldiers. Um, and people were doing everything they could to make their own, sort of grow their own produce. You see the newspapers are full of people obsessively talking about potato growing and how much sugar they should put in their jam and people being told off for making too much jam. Um, and people, allotments springing up in Chertsey, um, Chertsey burial ground at the church, some were allotted for burials, for graves, was taken over and made for allotments for war growing, which caused some controversy in the local area, which you can well imagine. Um, and the newspapers are full then of ideas of what you can do with your food. You can have, there's a, well, I think it's Surrey Mirror, they published a full week of suggested menu. You too can have bloated fritters and buttered eggs for breakfast. I think not, thank you very much. Um, but sort of, it was all ideas of how to save save food, how to, with all rationing coming into place. We then have lighting offences. Uh, this one is at Woking Police Court of Thomas Butler of Penware Cottage, Glencoe Road, Weybridge, fined for riding a bicycle with, um, with too much on his, um, on his bicycle, it's not obscured. This is going against the Defence of the Realm Act, or affectionately known as DORA. So the DORA was brought into place to restrict um, people's lives to kind of save in case of German invasion. So you could go, um, you couldn't meet up in groups. We wouldn't be allowed to meet here. Too many people. We could be sharing state secrets. Uh, no sports matches were cancelled. Beer was watered down and pub hours were shortened to stop you getting drunk and spilling potential secrets to a German spy that could be sent to you. Binoculars, you couldn't buy binoculars anymore. And God forbid you go and stand near a railway and, sit and somebody thinks you're loitering with intent because you will get arrested. Uh, a young boy was arrested um, for just simply painting Kempton Park, which was the depot. He was arrested because he was painting a military area um, which went against Dora. Church bells were not rung. All sorts of things that could be um, deemed as uh, sort of enemy action. And then we just have here the Woking Star just showing the German retreat and of the Battle of Arras. So wartime films were being shown in the local area. So I mentioned Belgian refugees. These, uh, we have a full collection of Belgian refugee records relating to the Bridge district, and it is our most full set of records relating to this topic. And I fully recommend, if you are interested, come and have a look at them, because they are fantastic. There were 123 Belgian refugees in the Weybridge district and every Surrey resident. Um, they were funded, there was fundraising efforts to raise money for clothes, for food, um, and they were sort of taken in by Weybridge people. And there was a chap called Bramley Taylor who lived at the Birches, the Common, Weybridge, and he was in charge of the Belgian Refugee Committee. So it was his job to collect information on what houses these refugees were staying at and to report back to the government as to who was staying where, what age were they, were they of military age, are they going to serve the Belgian army, how many children are here, when, who, what families are here. So really keeping a document of who, what, when, where and how. So I've, this is a sort of a page, a list from this, in nine, May 1915, um, the full set of lists, and you can see vaguely there's the Van Roost family, so you've got 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight members of that family have come to stay in Weybridge. And you see all their ages. Most of them are quite uh, sort of in their 60s, 70s, but children as well. And there's this, this, this lady here, I think, who's 21. Curzon Road, Percy Cottage Station Road, all sorts of familiar addresses to this area. And then people were fundraising for them. So between 1914 and 1917, Weybridge people raised over £800 to help the Belgian refugees in this area, which is quite a substantial amount of money for the day. And from the records, we see that 1916 sort of donations dipped slightly as the wartime restrictions and shortages. So I thought I'd bring along a little story with me. Um, not quite Weybridge, but he had he sort of uh, Henry Stanley. This is Henry Stanley here. He sort of dipped in and out of Weybridge. He trained in Weybridge, but he lived in Adelston, just down the road. I went to go and visit Henry's granddaughter, who lives in, in Hersham. Um, and she told me the story of Henry. He joined up with uh, the Major, Major Gordon Watney's boys. And Gordon Watney was a, a, quite a local important chap who raised up a sort of a, a lads, and they all went off to uh, the Western Front and off to Gallipoli as well as a part of a mechanical transport column. So Henry found himself as part of this mechanical transport column, which means that he was involved in the transportation of goods and supplies, armies and regiments out um, fighting. But in 1915, he found himself in Gallipoli. And in, whilst out there, he hand-carved this heart, this heart-shaped stone, which he sent back to his wife in Adelston. It says, to Elsie from Harry, my heart is with you tonight. Uh, a piece of cliff from the Cape of Hellas, Turkey. And I think, oh, Henry, you're romantic. You know, there is a bit of wartime romance out there. And it's these little treasure troves that we come across that really bring to life Surrey's stories and the people of this area. And the lovely thing about this one is we posted this, um, this heart and Henry's story onto our website, our project website, with the story. And you'll be found, minus a bit of, um, a bit of leg being uh, shrapnel in there, but he, he, he completely survived, lived to tell the tale. We posted his story on our website and he had a business partner. He ran a bicycle shop after the war in Adelston High Street. This is George. He looks uh, quite a grumpy chap. But um, George's, gran um, George's granddaughter got in touch with us because we didn't have a picture of Henry. Unfortunately, the family collection of photographs um, that Henry's uh, granddaughter had stolen in the 1950s. So she had no knowledge of what her grandfather looked like. No photographs at all. And then, so George's granddaughter got in touch with us and said, oh, I'm, I'm George's granddaughter. I've got a photograph of them outside of their... Uh, their I said, yes, please, that would be fantastic. We were finally able to put a face to a name and we shared it with Henry's granddaughter as well. So the two granddaughters coming to us with separate stories, but we're able to connect them together. And we've had a few times with uh, family reunions and people commenting, going, oh, that's my great-grandfather on the website, that's my great-uncle. Um, really fascinating local connections. So a little bit of economy and infrastructure. We see here guard duty Brooklands. I took these from lo lots of local newspapers, mainly the Surrey Herald and the Advertiser. So we see here our volunteer readers will read with great interest following official announcement, the guard duties at Brooklyn's aerodrome having now been taken over by the Royal volunteers who since February last have been doing su such valuable work there will not be required after the 18th instance. So there's lots of activity here at Brooklyn's. It's being used as, a, as, a, as an aerodrome. The Royal Flying Corps are based here. But there's lots of activity, military activity, and the presence of soldiers in Weybridge Town would not have gone unnoticed. And we have here, wanted for urgent government work in France. This was a plea 
to carpenters in the local area, particularly by um, W.G. Tarrant, government contractor from Byfleet. So he's looking for local carpenters to help make um, sort of timber structures um, out on the Western Front, so for trenches to reinforce them. This is using some downs by Canadian soldiers. So they're transporting the wood that's been, the timber that's been felled, they're transporting it across with local lads, local carpenters who've managed to get the hold of their French passport. They've had to supply six photographs just in case. They've got to go across and help reinforce the trenches out on the Western Front. We've got here the Walton War Agricultural Committee. So come 1916, 1917, the government is looking for any land that is not used, that is going to waste. They want to grow food, they want to grow vegetables and other sorts of you know, cereals. They want any bit of land that's going free. And this here is the Walton Agricultural Committee looking for land in the local area. So we, got, we have a chap here, Mr. But he can't do anything. He, all, most of his workers have gone to fight. They've all joined up. So he's saying in this paper, well, I can, I've got land and I can, I can farm it, but I'm going to need some help. And he asks if he can use prisoners of war from the Kempton, Kempton Park Depot. I haven't quite managed to follow this up. I don't know whether his wish was granted. But it's quite interesting to note that sort of German prisoners of war were being used for land work to help grow vegetables in the area. Uh, wartime Brooklyn, so uh, a little bit of 1917 of what was going on 100 years ago, but this is sort of more general information and pictures. So this, these two are sort of linked together. This is June 1914, a Red Cross Field Day at Brooklands, when the, uh, this area was being taken. Brooklands Colleges um, became a Red Cross Hospital, and interesting that it's, already, it's only June 1914. War breaks out on the 4th of August, but they're already preparing. They know war is coming and they're getting ready. So the Queen and uh, the Empress of Russia, Empress Marie of Russia, are coming to inspect the tents, the field tents at Brooklands. And they're in accompaniment by the Lock Kings of Brooklands, and also Lord and Lady Ashcombe, who are um, the cubits of Dorking. Um, Lord Ashcombe was the Lord Lieutenant of Surrey during the war, and Lady Ashcombe was the Surrey President of the British Red Cross. So a lot of movers and shakers attended this day. Um, the Lovelaces were there, many other sort of famous names um, coming to visit and inspect the tents. And then we see this opening during the war in October 1915 by the Princess Christian and detailing all who attended, how much money's been raised so far, all the supplies, how many beds are there, and, uh, and usually doing a plea for anybody that donates something here. And there's a little ceremony. Mrs. Lock King's there, she's, she's, she's overseeing everything. Um, and if you, you can imagine, all this activity suddenly from nowhere is, you know, the Brooklyn's is, is, is happening. There's nurses coming in, women coming in from outside the county. They're suddenly having somewhere to stay. They need, they're spending their money in the local town. They're meeting local soldiers as well. We've got many a story of, a, of, a, of ladies coming from outside the county and meeting soldiers married. There's many a, a, local, a local girl from Walton suddenly find, you know, falling in love with a New Zealand soldier at Walton-on-Thames in Mount Felix, and so she's going off back to New Zealand. And uh, at Whitley Camp, um, the Canadians there, very popular with the local girls. There's quite a significant half-Canadian population that was produced as a result. Um, so there's all this influence of different people, and people are really mobile because of the war in a way that they've never been before. 
And then we have here just a picture of Vickers Limited at the, here at Brooklands um, when the factory was set up, and also making munitions to sort of to, to go out to the Western Front. They were building bits of aircraft as well. And unfortunately, I did bring some film footage with me, but we, of the girls working in the factory here at Brooklands, and health and safety has completely gone out the window, as you can well imagine. Um, but it is a fantastic piece of footage, and we are putting together a DVD of footage from the home front, and this will be included. So keep your eyes peeled at future talks and events we host, because we will be showing it at those events. So I've had a little trawl through the newspapers to see what else I could find out. We've got workers at Brooklyn. This newspaper article is of a Mrs. Seckham, Brothers, Brothers, Brother White or Brother Wick, Curzon Road. She's making a plea for anybody that has a car in the local area, if they wouldn't mind donating their car and their chauffeur, because of course you have a chauffeur if you have a car, to help the, um, all the lady time to be a munitions worker at Brooklyn's factory. If they wouldn't mind helping transport them in the shift times, daily 1pm to 6pm and then 7.30pm till 10.30pm. Will anyone willing to help please communicate with me at the address? So there's all this, you know, the community pulling together, but cars obviously still quite rare, only the well-to-do have them. But we do see cars being, um, a plea for cars being used by the Red Cross as well. They want people to donate their cars in order to take wounded soldiers, convalescing soldiers out for a therapeutic drive in the Surrey countryside. And many people did answer this call. We see here, sentry wounded, shots exchanged at Brooklands. Everybody was on edge, 1914, 1915. Potential German spy uh, or enemy action could be afoot. And we have here Private Robertson, Robertson of the Royal West Surrey Regiment was guarding the aviation sheds at Brooklyn's aerodrome in the early hours of Sunday when he was shot at by a supposed spy. Robertson asserts that he, would, he challenged the man three times and then fired. The man, he says, returned the fire immediately, wounding him severely in the arm. The aerodrome was searched without success, although a man was seen to disappear in the woods when the motor car conveying Robertson was journeying to hospital. So we don't know quite what happened, but maybe somebody was lurking somewhere they shouldn't have been and, uh, and, and, and got fired at. But we do hear sort of stories of potential spies. There was one in Gomshall, a potential spy. I think it turned out to be a... Such was the, such was the kind of atmosphere of paranoia, the Ger a potential German invasion could be afoot, and people of Surrey were very genuinely worried that there would be a German invasion. We see here flying fatality at Brooklands. You may come across many stories of the fact that if you were part of a pilot in the Royal Flying Corps, it was far more dangerous actually to be in a training at home than actually fighting abroad. You were more likely to die in a training accident than you were to go out and fight in military action. And we see countless stories of pilots sadly losing their lives in such training accidents in this local area. They're all setting off from Brooklands. Uh, if you've ever, you know, you've probably seen pictures of what the old uh, hurricanes used to look like. Not exactly sturdy, and they probably were very highly sort of dangerous to manoeuvre, and one slip of your hand and you are unfortunately a goner. But here we have one such example of an inquest of a local soldier from the Royal Flying Corps who crashed his plane um, sort of whilst flying at Brooklands. Not a, not a pleasant experience at all. So I thought, I was asked to have a look at 1917 in particular, so I brought along a few examples from the papers. Uh, we have another such one, a smash at Chertsey, just down the road. This, this time he was lucky to be alive. He's, he's managed to survive and fight another day. Um, but we do have here Brooklyn's birthday. So it's the second birthday of the Brooklyn's hospital. We have the no Newfoundland band have come down from London with their mascot, 
the, a big black Newfoundland dog called Sable Chief. So you can imagine a bunch of Newfoundland soldiers coming down, a big brass band coming to play at Brooklyn's birthday. All these foreign soldiers coming to Surrey, being treated in Surrey, because it was such a hive of activity and being so close to London, you put them back on a train into London, off to the Western Front again. We have a Red Cross concert, the Red Cross Hospital here, lots of fundraising in the local area. There were many whist drives, ladies knitting things, the community really coming together to raise money for their local Red Cross Hospital. Um, and we have here uh, a performance of exceptional brilliance, Sir James Barry. The piece de resistance was the £12 look in which Miss Hilda Trevelyan was supported by Miss Sevening and Mr Arthur it looks like Cheney, but we've got lots of, they always name the people that were involved in these, which is brilliant for us because we want who is doing what um, in the local area, we want to capture their names. Um, and then supposed aliens near Brooklands, these are the, the foreign individuals that could be potentially dangerous. And here we have a German chap called um, Max von Rapp, who was an Austrian, um, who'd worked for the Deutsche Bank up in London. He lived here for 24 years um, and was a pretty well-known, well-liked chap, but because he was Austrian, therefore the enemy of, uh, of, of enemy national dishing. Is he, is he really safe to be here, let alone the fact he's nearly 70 and isn't really a threat to anybody, and he's very popular and well-known in the local area, but this is the paranoia again. Um, we have another case of a chap um, who lives near Weybridge, registered a, a Finn from Finland. Um, he's of military age and therefore a bit more of a, a, of a threat and he's known to have sympathies with the Kaiser. Um, but these, sort of, these stories are really prevalent in local papers. So I've come on to some, an individual. This is Sir Sidney Cam. Uh, hearing some nods and no, no knowledge of him here. He was born in Windsor in 1893 and he is the designer of the Hurricane um, aircraft. And I do have, remember all, uh, all these facts, I did bring with me the story of, of Sydney, um, the Hawker <coughs> Hurricane. He began his career here at Brooklands. Um, when he, he left school at the age of 15 and became an apprentice carpenter. And during this time, his love for model aircraft really blossomed. And he eventually joined the, the Windsor Model Aircraft Club. And it was during this time, he and his brother Frederick would frequently come here up to Brooklands to watch the planes flying. And a particular uh, story we have of 1913, and it was a chap called Adolphe Pegu, I think. You have to forgive my French, French pronunciation doing his loop-the-loops in a, a, Blair, a Blariot monoplane. And again, forgive my pronunciation, um, but he's, a, you know, absolutely key to aircraft production, Sir Sidney Cam. He then comes to be employed by Martinside, um, Martinside Aircraft Factory, originally based in Woking, and they moved to Brooklands in 1909. And uh, it's here he worked originally as a craftsman on the shop floor, and his career really develops, and he gets promoted and promoted um, as, the, as the war goes on, and he's sponsored to go and uh, learn how to design aircraft as well. He's also present when the king and queen come to visit the Martinside factory, and they spend many an hour asking lots of questions and witnessing demonstrations and a local pilot from here, from Brooklands, called uh, R.F.B. Raymond. We don't know his uh, full name, but he performed for the King and Queen, setting off here at Brooklands and doing his flyby for the King and Queen. 
And as the war goes on, his creative talents only grow. And by the end of the war, he then eventually um, leaves the company, goes to Kingston, and helps design the Hawk, uh, um, Hurricane aircraft. And uh, eventually he stays in the area, he moves over to uh, Long Ditton and Thames Ditton, and he dies in 1969 and is buried in Long Ditton churchyard. But he's an absolutely key, crucial um, in aircraft history here at Brooklands. The Martinside factory was the third largest manufacturer of aircraft during the war in Britain. So a really key, crucial part of the war effort. Um, and Sydney was right at the heart of it of local people. We have the Luxford family. The Luxford surname may be familiar if you've seen Luxford vans driving around Weybridge. I know I've certainly seen them. And I went to go and visit an ancestor, relative of the Luxford family. Um, Herbert Luxford married Evelyn Dumper. What an unfortunate surname. Um, he was the brother-in-law. Her, um, Herbert Luxford was the brother-in-law of, of Douglas Belcher, who was a VC winner. But the Luxfords ran three grocer shops in, Woke, in uh, Weybridge, Queen's Road, the Quadrant and Oatlands Village. Um, and into the war period, they continued to run this grocer shop, but obviously meeting, having to meet the demands of wartime restrictions. Then 1916 comes, conscription is, comes into place, Herbert finds him having to join the army. He's got a very young family, he's got twins under the age of two and a third one on the way, um, and he manages to get, uh, gain exemption for a year. Um, and meanwhile, the shop, two of the shops have to sadly close. They have to take on help for the third shop um, from a young boy. Herbert then eventually has to join the Royal Flying Corps, but his eyesight is so bad, he's only a, on the grounds crew at Brooklands here, um, and he's allowed to go home every night to his family. So it's one of those nice stories. He gets home, and he completely survives the war because his eyesight's so bad, he can't, he's no use to anyone up and fighting a plane. Um, and then we have the defence of Surrey. Uh, this line here is the route the German Zeppelin took on the night of 1915. This arrow points to Chertsey. So you can imagine Chertsey, Adelston, Weybridge, this sort of area, seeing a whacking great Zeppelin flying by on that night, and what a terrifying sight it must have been. Um, it took this route, a stray German Zeppelin took this route all the way down. This is Newlands Corner. Lady Onslow of Clandon Park wrote in her diary that the windows of Clandon Park rattled as, uh, as the German Zeppelin went by. And uh, we do have a family story of uh, an aunt, somebody's aunt, who fell off her bike into a bush because she was so startled by seeing a German Zeppelin come across. And then it dropped its load on Guildford. And as I said earlier, fortunately, in this instance, nobody was killed. I'm clipping here from 1916, so only a year later, and a German Zeppelin is shot down um, in the middle of the night. And at Weybridge, Chertsey, Walton and elsewhere, numerous persons and special constables, firemen and volunteers receiving an early call saw Super Zepp ablaze and its headlong rush to destruction. Cheers were raised in the streets of Weybridge where some French and Belgian visitors were amongst the most demonstrative. So you can imagine, you know, so you're a Belgian refugee or a French sort of visitor to the area. Your home has been destroyed by Germans. You're seeing a, a German Zeppelin. You can understand the emotion there. Um, and I, I did say sort of Croydon, so over here, 1917, suffered more bombing. But there were there was a line from Dart the Dartford Tunnel all the way through the Hogs back to Guildford of um, sort of defence mechanisms, people guarding the Surrey line, just in case um, the Germans did invade. And people were very worried about this. Um, and the scouts were involved. They were, they were used to patrol the railway lines to, uh, to, to hunt for potential enemy action. Everybody got involved in the defence effort. 
So moving on very swiftly to health and welfare. I mentioned the, the Red Cross Hospital. I thought I'd bring along a couple of examples from the British Red Cross website. So I've got a, a lady here, Dorothy Belchier. She was a pantry maid um, here at Brooklands Hospital. So she's from Claygate and joined. She'd be helping in the, uh, in the sort of the kitchen. She'd be helping with food, but many females did get involved in knitting, VAD um, workers, sort of basic nursing, um, washing, cooking, cleaning, helping soldiers. But on the other side of the, I fit both parts of her card in, but on the other side, it does describe her character. And some of them are very funny when the matron of the hospital describes somebody as satisfactory. And you think, oh dear. But this, um, this lady, Dorothy, her, her, her uh, character is described as excellent and dependable. So good on Dorothy. We know she's a good one. But uh, some of them are a very, uh, a very amusing read. But then men were also involved in the VH Red Cross. Men served as um, ambulance drivers, stretcher bearers. We do have from Guildford a 14-year-old stretcher bearer called Cecil Mitchell. And um, while I'm at it, Surrey does have the youngest known um, soldier to have died. Valentine uh, Strudrick from Dorking was 15 when he was killed out on the Western Front, and he is buried at Essex Farm Cemetery. We have the, uh, the only woman known to have officially served as a soldier in the army. Uh, Flora Sanders of Thornton Heath in Croydon was a nurse with the, with the Red Cross. She became detached from her, her group in Serbia whilst assisting the Serbian army. She did what any woman would do in a war zone by herself and she disguised herself as a soldier, as a man. She was that good, she got promoted to the highest medal of honour you could in the Serbian army. Um, and if you see a picture of Flora Sanders, you know why. Because she is quite a built lady. Um, but we, we love telling Flora's story. Um, so back, back to the chaps of the British Red Cross. This is Ernest Catchlove of Hope Villa, Weybridge, and he is a chauffeur. And over the other side of the, uh, the, the card, we read that he is Mr Locke King's personal chauffeur, um, and he donates his services to the hospital, driving ambulances, chauffeuring um, sort of soldiers, wounded soldiers. He's donating his skills. He's doing a bit of electrical work, a bit of engine work, a bit of this, a bit of that. Um, and he's also then primarily based at the hospital. But it's really interesting finding out about the men involved as well. They were at work. Um, there's a chap from the, over in Bookham, and he does the, local, he does the um, audit, the yearly audit of the Bookham um, uh, Red Cross Hospital as well. And it's always nice to know that you're interesting to read about these, you know, both men and women were involved in the Ross work. So I've moved on to a couple of last slides of conscription and military tribunals. And I mentioned um, earlier sort of uh, a local example of a tribunal. This is E.M. Forster, the famous um, novelist who wrote A View. A view. Um, he was a Weybridge resident. He's from uh, Monument Green, Weybridge. Um, and he served as a searcher um, in the Red Cross because he was a pacifist. He didn't want to fight. Um, so he, um, and he was in charge of trying to find bodies in no man's land and then he went over to Egypt in Alexandria and he was in charge of asking um, soldiers, wounded soldiers, if they knew of the whereabouts of missing servicemen and he eventually became um, a searcher-in-chief um, to quite a high-ranking role over, so overseeing the general kind of hunt for missing se um, servicemen in, in Egypt. And then we have a local example here, the Herbert Banks, 34, provision manager of Weybridge, applying for exemption. On the grounds, he's a member of the Plymouth Brethren. Um, so for religious reasons, he is objecting to the war effort. He's granted exemption on the basis that he finds work of national importance. 
And then we move on to women on the, the, in the First World War. Women on the home front, and then I'll do women on, in the Western front. So we have this lady here is called Fanny Elizabeth Cumper. She, uh, her brother was one of the old, oldest ones we've come across. He was 14 when he was called up to uh, fight. The upper age limit of conscription reached 50 by 1918. Um, but Fanny worked at the Chilworth Munitions Factory um, down in the Surrey Hills with her friend Elsie, who was wearing her war service badge. Fanny suffered from epilepsy. So if you can imagine working in a munitions factory with epilepsy. I don't know if it's exceedingly brave or very foolhardy, but uh, I prefer the brave option because what a character she was. But she's quite a tall girl um, and just costume that they would have worn. This is Ellen from Englefield Green, age seven in this picture. She used to knit socks as under the commands of her schoolmistress for Canadian soldiers being cared for at the Princess Christian Red Cross Hospital in Englefield Green. Uh, and there's, only, there's one story of a young Canadian soldier, his 21st birthday comes along, and they, the community goes, oh, let's throw him a party. What can we, what can we make? What have, what's everybody got? They throw him an absolute well sort of a shindig and everyone enjoys it so suddenly everybody else has a 21st birthday coming up um, so it's lovely stories of community coming together we have the Chertsey Women's War Work um, Association here they are lined up on the main street going through Chertsey and again the Broadwood Piano Factory women on the fighting fronts women did go out to the western front and other sort of war battle battlefields as well we have women serving in the Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps these ladies would have done things like serve in the canteens in northern France, of feeding soldiers out behind the front lines. Um, but we also have Red Cross nurses going out as well. So Margaret Arnold is our lady here. She was one of the first Surrey nurses, she was from Chiddingfold, to go out and help in the Red Cross hospitals. Um, she was particularly at the Chapeau near Dieppe in France. So her, her hospital was under a canvas on a cliff edge um, in, in, in France. And um, she sadly died of pneumonia in 1916 out in France. But we have her diary experience of treating soldiers with incredibly horrific wounds, but also visiting the local Ritz and uh, taking cake and afternoon tea as well. Um, but she died in 1916, and this is her funeral, um, attended by all the soldiers she'd been treating and all the nurses in her detachment. And her father and sister came along to attend the funeral as well. And it's quite a moving image. Her grave is still out there today in Le Trepour, um, and we're quite proud of Margaret. She's a real character, a real stoic sort. And then looking at Hidden Surrey, finally, um, we're just looking at other stories, other people, other kind of non-subjects um, sort of that don't really come up when people talk about the war. So we've got our German prisoners. Of this chap here is called Frank Braithwaite. Frank um, is from Guildford, and he was blinded in both eyes at Gallipoli. Um, but he was retrained at St Dunstan's Hospital, which is now Blind Veterans UK. And he was trained in leatherwork. And here he is outside his own shop in Guildford um, as a, in, with his um, disability. He was so successful, he opened three more shops. And the local newspapers all report you'd never know he was blind by the way he worked with his leather and the way he dealt with customers. So we look at these returning servicemen's experiences of dealing with disability, dealing with the emotional trauma of war, of shell shock, of uh, potentially losing a leg, losing an arm. We have pictures from Poles and Lacey, um, which was used as a hospital. Mrs. Greville, um, come to her, her house, no rank and file, um, just the officers in 1915 and 1916. Um, we do have sort of convalescing soldiers there in the, in the deck chairs looking out. What a beautiful view. 
to convalesce um, in that area before they were off back to the Western Front. But we're looking at this experience of coming home after serving abroad. And Hatchlands Park was also used, and that was for the rank and file. The people there didn't care who came through their door. Come on in, we'll look after you. And then this is the Canadian soldiers box at Whitley. Wilfred Owen spent six months at the Whitley camp um, before he went off to fight at the Somme in 1916. And he detailed in many letters to his brother and his mother of all the cake he ate in Guildford and the cycling he did between Godalming and Guildford and what a lovely area. Do have a look at those letters if you can find. We've got a couple of snippets on our website. And then just little bits about um, aliens in the area and, uh, and the police gazettes of posting descriptions of deserters and those that failed to answer the call. And then very finally, this is what our project website looks like. And I would really urge you to go and have a little look and see what stories we are collecting. We've got over 560 stories so far, and we're on the hunt for more. Our project aims to sort of get people in Surrey mobilised at looking at their own family history, their own sort of story of their local area. Um, and this is where we've got all of our information from. So please do go and have a little look. And if there is something missing, something you're interested in, please do get in touch with us because research it. We, 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 have, lots of, we have over 120, 150 volunteers so far at the moment uh, mobilised in researching and finding out Surrey stories. We are collecting names from war memorials. So our, our aim is to have the name of every single man and woman on a memorial. Because um, there are women on Surrey's war memorials. If you go to Woking Town Centre, Doris Champion is on there. Um, but she's under the name of Boris for some reason, but we know she's Doris. Um, but, uh, we, we are on the hunt for names. We want to commemorate the name of every single person connected to Surrey before these war memorials. They do get vandalised, sadly. They do go missing. We want to make sure we have the name of every single person connected to the county during the war to make sure their memory lives on and to make sure that we're ready. So we're collecting images as well. Stories are events. We have resources and research guides online. We have a little bit of film footage on there. Um, but it's a it makes for a fascinating read. Um, and uh, we all get quite happily sort of waylaid by reading stories when we should actually be working and doing uh, little bits involved with the project. But please do go and have a look. We've got many sort of events and talks coming up. We've got a Surrey Heritage Showcase um, in Cranley on the 14th of October, which I'll be talking at, but you'll get to find out a bit more about Surrey History Centre. And we're also doing an oral history project. We want to talk to anybody who was alive or has memories of Surrey in the 1920s and 30s to find out what post-war Surrey life was like. Society, how did social change with women having suddenly had so much social liberation with earning their own money, working, you know, taking over the role of men in many workplaces, and suddenly the men are coming back home again and they want their jobs back? Housing for local soldiers home. We're really interested in finding out what Surrey life was like between the two wars. So if you do know of anyone who may fit the bill, and um, we do sort of go up to 1950 as a cut-off point, please do get in touch because we would love to interview them. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope I, it's a sort of whistle-stop tour of Surrey in the Great War. There is so much more to discover and so much more to find out, and I, I hope you've enjoyed looking at all the pictures, because I certainly do. <laughs> thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I could list that all evening, up and about you. Um, being a local lad, a lot of the names of Luxford's and Curzon Road and uh, just remarkable from my family point of view. So 
Thank you. No problem. I should say I Absolutely do have Project East with me with our website address and contact details on the back and a little bit more about the project. So I do have those with me and I'll pop them at the back somewhere. Don't extend your date to 1952, <laughs> do you? Because <laughs> well, it would keep me in a job for a very uh, long time. I'm sure I can. <laughs> There's some questions you'd like to ask. Well, there you go. Hold on, hold on. Rules of engagement. Um, Microphone just first. The, the fire at, um, of course, the Clandon mm. and the East Surrey Museum was there. Did they save anything from that museum? They managed to save a few medals, the football, I think. Wasn't there, the yeah, the football was lost, unfortunately. Yeah. There is still one in existence at Dover Castle, I think, but the football was lost. The Surrey Infantry Museum have been living next door to us at the History Centre past couple of years. Um, not much survives, unfortunately, in its physical state, but fortunately, Surrey History Centre took digital copies of pretty much everything in the collection, and we do have quite a lot at the History Centre. It's not the real thing over nothing at all to survive. Um, but there is a little bit. There's a, the firefighters did manage to save some of the medals when they rushed in and out, but not much. Another question, maybe? There must be one. Yes, hold on just a moment. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, dear. We switched off. You are switched on. Hello. Thank you for a fantastic talk. I think everybody's absolutely amazed at what you had to say. Uh, the only thing I'm... Is this on? Yes, Can you're you fine, anyway? Peter. Uh, the only thing I want to know is... How Surrey, or our particular area, celebrated the end of the war? Um, there were many peace days. A lot of people didn't really have the kind of energy to commemorate the end of the war when the armistice happened in 1918. People were tired. There wasn't a lot of it was to do with commemoration in terms of remembrance. So Weybridge was actually organising its own war memorial at the time, and we do have records of the committee that was brought together to vote on how best to remember the fallen of Weybridge. So they were offered three choices: a sort of a tablet a commemorative chapel, and then the war memorial that exists in the town centre today. Um, so it was mainly focused around war memorials at the very end of the war, and this, this sort of fundraising activity went into sort of 1921. Weybridge War Memorial was actually erected in 1921, with fundraising taking place. But most communities in this area would have mostly celebrated in July 1919, which was on the 19th, I think, which was known as Peace Day. And uh, we do have images of dreamers and bunting and parades of soldiers um, because for many people the war didn't end in 1918. Uh, troops were still out on the various battlefields and fronts um, well into 1919 before they got demobilised. Um, and we do sort of um, lots of soldiers here, the foreign soldiers here weren't allowed to go home until from 1919, 1920. So we do have records of a Canadian riot at Epsom um, because they weren't allowed to go home and they, they destroyed the local police station and killed a sergeant because they weren't allowed to go home. So the war didn't end in 1918, like many people think. It, it continued and the word didn't spread to many of the far-flung places until 1919. So you've still got quite a bit of action going on. So that, if that sort of answers your question of, of, of what the local community was doing to commemorate the end of the war. Yes, yes. <laughs> Another question, maybe? Very quiet. Oh, right, here we go. We're started now, so... Well, I'll come to you at the back in a minute. No, may I compliment you on your control of the, the subject? <laughs> we are amazed. Thank you. <laughs> but um, this project, how long is it lasting? What, um, what, 
We, what, yes, what's we're it going about? until, um, so officially the pick will stop being an active, we won't, myself and my colleague Kirsty will continue to actively seek stories and commission research until the armistice centenary into that next year. But we've been, just been granted a project extension to Katine, so will we continue to do commemorative events and talks um, into 2019. So, but the project website will continue well beyond um, our project contract as such, because we hope that people will continue to use it as a, as a tool of uh, remembrance and also sharing stories. So it will remain active. You will, people will be able to contribute well beyond the centenary period. But myself and my colleague, Kirsty, are employed until December 2019. Another question at the back oh, yeah. here. Yeah. Imogen, uh, great Hello. talk. Thank you very much. Uh, I saw in one of your slides, I saw uh, a line patrolling the border with the adjacent county. Mm. How was that patrolled? Seems as maps you had, there was a line, and I think you said you were patrolling the border because they uh, might be... Was this the, the Zeppelin um, air raid line yeah, I was showing? Yeah. So the, the line I'd marked um, in black or blue, I think it was, that was, yeah. the, that was the route the Zeppelin took. Um, but the county boundaries as such, there wasn't really patrols on the boundaries, it was more sort of guarding and patrolling key points of interest. Um, so um, people were, the, the, the Defence Corps and the Scouts would, would guard and patrol the railways or be patrols around specific bases, um, but the boundaries themselves, not so much. But that, that line was the Zeppelin route that it took in 1915. Um, that's it there. Is that the one you're talking about? That's the one, yes. yeah. So the, where the arrow is, the blue line, that's the route. Um, but as such, there were no particular county patrols around the border, it was more sort of pinpoints of military interest that they would guard. Thank you. Didn't you mention a Surrey defence line? Yes, there was a Surrey defence line, which isn't on this map, um, but we do know it went from the Dartford Tunnel through to the Hogsback, but it was more sort of pinpoints, it wasn't a sort of solid line, it was more sort of garrisons here and a sort of a, a cluster of soldiers there, but just sort of um, not nothing completely flies, nothing to put on a map really. But we do know it stretched from those sort of that kind of semicircle of a line going through, cutting through Kenton into Surrey. Another question, maybe, ladies and gentlemen. Any more? Oh, I'm looking into there. the light. Where? Are, oh, put your hand up again. Where are we? One at the back. There we are. Go, sir. Yeah. Um, good evening. Um, an excellent talk. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'm particularly interested in the lady you mentioned who served with the uh, Serbian army. Mm -hmm. Flora. Um, where is she actually buried? Um, I don't know if she's actually buried. She did survive the war um, and she went on to marry a fellow Serbian officer, so I don't quite know how that came about. Yes, he was, a, he was um, actually became a local doctor. Um, in, Red, in Red Hill. Oh, okay. Uh, we're, we're still trying to, because obviously part of our project is we know the basics of Flora's story. Yeah, well, we I do... did come across the reference somewhere, mm -hmm. but I've not been able to re retrace it. We'll have to... Uh, it might be of interest to you, of you to know... Definitely. ...that the uh, British Embassy, in conjunction with the Serbian Post Office, a couple of years ago, uh, issued a set of six stamps to the six uh, uh, Scottish women's doctors mm -hmm. who served with the army. Fascinating. Thank you very much. We'll have to definitely investigate. Yeah, myself. well, it's uh, my particular interest because I've mm. been researching the First World War from the aspect of a st uh, being a stamp collector. Well, please do um, get in touch with us and we'd love to sort of explore that more with you. Uh, leaflets, so please do get in touch. It'd be fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for that. Any more while I'm at this end of the room? As soon as I move up the front, there'll be someone at the back, I can guarantee you. Um, just to let you know that, as Imogen said, when we get into the tail end of the war next year, we will be holding another evening such as this, and we'll be exploring really what went on towards Armistice Day, and I'd very much like Imogen for you to back and join us lovely, at that thank point. You. There'll be others as well, no doubt, that would like to contribute. I should have uh, the DVD with me by then, so excellent. I can show you okay, the footage. Excellent. All right, so thank you very much indeed. If there are no more questions, Imogen, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>